Kia ora, I'm Philip Atali. Welcome to Insight. This week, the road toll. The upward trend in road deaths is showing no sign of slowing down. The number of people who have died in accidents on New Zealand's roads this year has already far outstripped the figure of 281 for the same time last year. Already more than 320 people have been killed. But why are the figures going up? And what attempts are being made to turn the trends around? And just a warning for those who have been injured or lost someone to a road accident. Some of this programme could be upsetting. Police are worried that the road toll could skyrocket with another spate of fatal crashes overnight. Last Yet night, another nightmare weekend. And for every person killed on the road, another 10 are seriously injured. Every death is said to cost New Zealand $4.2 million. Two crashes in the South Island left two people dead and several people injured. The horror of those statistics is faced regularly by those who are called in to help whenever there's an accident, be it a car, a motorcycle or a pedestrian that's been hurt or worse. Superintendent Steve Greeley, the National Manager of Road Policing, says nothing can prepare people for the sight, sound and smell of a crash. I can remember the first time I went to one of these scenes and it wasn't a fatal crash but it was, um, there was a, a serious injury involved and it was a screaming by people, people who, who couldn't cope. Um, and there was nothing that we could do for them. Um, we were not the medical experts, even the paramedics. You know, they, they can do first aid, they can do a little bit before they get to the hospital. But it's the pain, it's the trauma, it's the shock from these people that you see and hear. And uh, it's very, very hard to deal with. And, um, and that goes for all of our police officers. Um, it's very, very difficult to, to, to deal with. This insight explores why, after so much education and many millions spent on improving this nation's roads, the death toll has been heading upwards again. Well, I ran out and just saw the van lying on its side over there and people scuttling across the road into the paddock and heard that child crying and screaming that I thought, I can't handle this out here, I'm back inside again. Jean Jones was one of those who called the ambulance shortly after a taxi van flipped into a paddock just down the road from her home in rural South Auckland last month. Two of the five people on board were seriously injured, but luckily in this case no one was killed. But tragically, death has been the outcome in so many road accidents this year. Superintendent Steve Greeley says the death and injury at a crash site is hard to bear, but even worse is having to tell someone their loved one is not coming home. He recalls the first time the task fell to him not long after joining the police 17 years ago. It was a horrible feeling. Um, you sink, you know, your heart sinks, you, you, you get very nervous about what you're about to do because quite literally you're about to ruin someone's life, um, their loved one. So... Uh, I remember fronting up there and um, we turned up and my sergeant said, look, when we knock on the door and you speak to her, we'll identify who she is, that she's related to this person. And um, he said, just spit it out. He said, if you don't, you'll hesitate and you'll never tell her. And that will make things worse. And so um, I must have had about uh, a month experience at that time out of the uh, police college. Knocked on the door, she was the only one there. And... Um, she didn't know why we were there, so I did exactly what my sergeant said. <clears throat> and I, I did, I just spat it out. I, I said, I'm sorry, but your husband's been killed in a car crash. And um, I, I saw it right there the first time. 
um, her world imploded right before me. So what's been going on with the road toll in recent years? The National Director of Safety for the New Zealand Transport Agency, Harry Wilson, says until recently it looked like the fight against the death and mayhem on the roads was being won. New Zealand's worst time in the world was 1985. We had about 787 deaths at that time. It has been decreasing steadily till about 2014, where we had our lowest road toll ever, which was about 241. It's creeping up from about 2015-16. So we're currently last year 328 deaths, which is an absolute tragedy. Um, and uh, the, the road toll is still increasing. It's very similar to overseas countries, so Australia's experiencing the same phenomena. Uh, there's um, a certain level of that that is around simply um, coming out of an economic recession. People didn't travel so much, which is part of the reason we had such low numbers in 2014. Um, and we now have a lot more economic productivity, so people are travelling more. Fuel's been cheaper, um, so there's a lot more um, people on the road. But that in itself doesn't explain the trend. And he says the injury rate is much worse. It's almost a um, 10 for 1 ratio. So for, for the 300 deaths, there are 3,000 serious injuries, and that's serious injuries that involve hospitalisations. Those numbers are, are quite incredible. You think of that over 10 years, that's 30,000 people who have been affected, not just the, the people who, of course this isn't the people who have died or are injured, it's the whole family story. And so behind that is a tragic set of family circumstances and trying to adjust with that. Harry Wilson says here, factors like human error, speed and alcohol still apply, but the whole picture is more complex. Yes, there, there are a lot more trucks on the road. The, the rate of heavy vehicles at fault has stayed relatively static, but of course the crash forces involved with a truck. So if someone drives into a truck or a pedestrian just walks out in front of a truck, there's no looking back. But the other one's motorcycles. You know, last year 21% of the road toll was around motorcycles. And of course, motorcycling, if you come off a motorbike, there's only what you're wearing and a helmet and an asphalt. And where you stop is probably on a tree or a fence or in, and that, so it can lead to you know, debilitating injury. So again with economic conditions people are using bigger bikes, you know, the, the thousand cc is now the standard. Kids you must remember every time you're in the car And it makes no difference if you're going near or far If you're in the front seat or if you're in the back Click goes your seatbelt On the front line, officers say the frustration is huge when a death or serious injury could have been avoided by simply making it click. The education campaigns urging drivers and passengers to buckle up have been around for decades. Superintendent Greeley says in 2013 the average number of people who died not wearing a seatbelt was 57, but so far this year it's almost doubled to nearly 100. He says those figures are astounding and the excuses handed out are as well. A small minority, I, I, in my experience, what I've heard is um, I'm not going to put my belt on them and what you say. I don't believe in it. It's not going to happen to me. So it's an, they're infallible in their, in, in their view. And it's not just young people either. It's just some people have that uh, train of thought. Others uh, I've heard of, uh, one says, no, I've, I don't want to crease my suit. I've got a presentation, my, my, my shirt, I've got a presentation at work and I'm late for it, so get out of my way which provoked another conversation, as you can imagine. That person needed to slow down and needed to get perspective. 
The drive to make sure people wear seatbelts is long-standing, but there are two areas where less is known about the potential impact on road accidents. Drug use and the distraction of mobile phones and other devices. An analysis of the New Zealand road toll by the consulting firm Deloitte, just released by the Ministry of Transport, said more complete data was needed over drug driving and distractions. Superintendent Greeley says the police almost always test for alcohol first and only for drugs if there is good cause to suspect. Then impairment tests, such as standing on one leg, can be required, leading to possible blood tests. So to what extent is drug use a factor? Oh, it's very, very hard to say because I don't have the evidence to support it. So um, anecdotally, um, I mean, we know that people use alcohol and drugs um, to varying degrees and various types, but to draw that conclusion would be pretty a big stretch on my part at the moment because we just don't have the evidence to support it. But um, we're obviously always very interested to know um, what is causing people to make silly decisions on our roads and whether it's an impairment. When it comes to mobile phones, police records show a massive increase in the number of offences. In 2009, there were just over 900 recorded. By 2016, that number had jumped to nearly 29,000. Steve Greeley believes the figure is probably much higher. Now we all know uh, what we're detecting is a tip, tip of the iceberg. Um, but it comes again from people not seeing the risk, thinking they can multitask. Because I've been doing this for years when it was legal and I didn't have a crash, means I can do it now. You know what? I don't think I'm going to be detected. People just don't see the risk, but we've had some really strong campaigns on that where we've really honed in it to try to push the message that, hey, this is not only illegal, it's illegal for a reason. It's because you're not affording every other road user, you're not affording yourself or your passengers the attention to the road, to that activity that you should be. And nobody wants to share the road with someone who's not paying attention. It's as bad as drunk driving. Others have been doing their own investigations into the climbing road toll. The Automobile Association says losing control was the number one factor last year, but failing to keep left or give way, alcohol and drugs, and distraction also feature strongly. But what about the roads themselves? Douglas Wilson is the director of the Engineering Laboratory at Auckland University's Transportation Research Centre. He says roads generally play a part in a third of crashes. Our roading network, he says, is based on routes set out early last century. 35 to 36% of our road network is actually unsealed road, roads. That means that they are generally less than 500 vehicles a day. So you've got the, the extreme of um, the very good quality roads that we're building at the moment, which carry a large proportion of the vehicle kilometres travelled in the country, but then a lot of the other roads are somewhere between the sort of unsealed road and that, that um, type of road. And so... The, the difficulty that we've had with those roads is that basically we've inherited that infrastructure from previous generations, which and most of those roads actually came from uh, typically horse and cart days as they got closer to the cities. And over time, we've been able to fix the worst parts of those areas by sort of minor, minor safety improvements and road realignments of geometrics. But predominantly, they, they follow a road alignment that if we were designing that from scratch today, we would certainly not be designing them to that standard. We would uh, improve that standard. But we can't afford as a country to actually improve all of our road network 
um, within the period of time frame that we would like to be able to do. And so the bucket of money that we have available is, is limited. And so we have to prioritise that spending to where we get the, the greatest gains. Um, and unfortunately, that means that a lot of our secondary and even third sort of tier roads around the country um, are very unlikely to get significant improvements on them. As we watch the traffic flowing along a busy road near the AA's headquarters in Wellington, its general manager of motoring affairs, Mike Noon, told me roading improvements were high on its list for the new government. What we have asked for is for 150 kilometres a year of um, two-star quality um, high-speed rural roads to be upgraded to three-star quality. That can halve the deaths and serious injuries on those roads. So that is a call for more investment, and we've also called for more investment in that dividing of roads where we've got roads which are too trafficked. Now, anyone makes a mistake, there's something coming the other way. And how much more would that be um, kilometres every year than is actually being done at the moment? We think in that there's maybe about 70 or 80 is the best estimate I've got at the moment. So it's towards so a it's doubling. doubling. So it's towards a doubling, and, um, and particularly accounting for that. So we want to measure that we're actually seeing that we're making this improvement. The AA wants New Zealand to follow Australia's lead, where drug testing has been going on for more than a decade. Mr Noon says research suggests drugs could be a significant problem. The study, which goes back a few years now, and it was the coronial study of 1,046 deceased drivers, so this was blood from dead drivers, um, it found... You know, quite staggeringly, about 35% of those drivers had an impairing level of drugs on board. So if you're looking for the elephant in the room, it is at the moment that we think, and that was um, illegal drugs and also prescription drugs, but uh, drug driving is a real problem in New Zealand. Um, it's not being addressed at all. It is being addressed in Australia. They do roadside saliva testing. Also on the AA's wish list, as well as that of the Transport Agency, is the compulsory display of a used car's safety rating. Mike Noon says leaving it up to buyers to look up a safety rating online sends the message that safety is less important than fuel consumption. If you go and buy a fridge, they're going to tell you how much electricity it uses. You buy a washing machine, they're going to say, look, this is how much water it uses, this is how much electricity it uses. Actually, when you buy a car, it will tell you what its fuel rating is, but it won't tell you what its safety rating is. So two cars look exactly alike. You buy the red one, it's a two-star car, all goes wrong with your family, you're going to be seriously hurt, they're going to be seriously hurt. If you'd known and you'd bought the four-star car, completely different outcome. Roading engineer Doug Wilson believes it may be time to consider reducing some speed limits. One of the things that we have to address as a country is that we have inappropriate speeds in a lot of our secondary and third tier type road systems. And so we have to very seriously consider over the future reducing down speeds to what is an appropriate speed environment for the types of uh, roads that are not designed for open speed limits, which we used to talk about with a slash through it, which meant up to 100 kilometres an hour. From the New Zealand Transport Agency's point of view, buy-in from the public for any change to speed limits is vital. Its National Director of Safety, Harry Wilson, says that could be difficult. The whole thing is bringing the public with us, and, and the public's attitude to speed is um, actually quite frightening. 
you know, it's a, um, it's, it is a perfect bell curve. You know, the, um, you have some who will um, follow the speed regardless of, um, you know, so they always follow the rules. You're some that will totally disregard the rules. There's some who will only um, drive the speed as long because they think they need caught so the deterrence effect. And some who are in that educated sort of thinking, well, actually, you know, I need to balance out my driving behaviour. So. It's one of those questions about do you regulate and put in a regime when you don't get the public with you? And if the public aren't with you, they will ignore it. Changing the way motorists drive has always been a challenge. Samuel Charlton is an associate professor of psychology at Waikato University, where he studies driver behaviour. He says driving is often almost automatic and that embedding new habits is hard. He points to this type of safety ad. Oh no, George is driving. He's too wasted. I should say something, but I could look dumb in front of Monique. Professor Charlton says rather than telling drivers what to do, it provides a model of good behaviour. But he says New Zealanders do tend to dodge responsibility. And if he dies, his children will haunt me forever. When drivers sort of disengage from the driving task, there's an awful tendency to say, well, it's not my fault. I mean, this is just a, a, a terrible road and, and I'm doing the best I can and, and get on with their day. But just as I've said, we all have a responsibility for making the road safer. Drivers have a, have a responsibility as well. We need to, to sort of realize that it's not all the other drivers' fault that we bear some of the responsibility ourselves. And, and very often we are intolerant of the needs of other road users, whether it's, whether it's as I said, cyclists or pedestrians or whatever. And that's got to change. <laughs> and he says New Zealanders are competitive drivers. We're one of the world leaders when it comes to uh, having a, a desire to race away from the traffic lights and beat everyone else around us. We're quite prone to um, wanting to catch up. If someone's ahead of us, we, we want to get ahead of them. And it's not arrogance, but there is a very strong competitive streak uh, in New Zealand drivers that isn't uh, expressed in quite that same way overseas. Not even Australia? Not even Australia. But apart from driver behaviour, engineering and regulations, what about New Zealand's ability to save those seriously injured in some type of accident? Ian Civil is a trauma surgeon at Auckland City Hospital. He's also the clinical head of the Major Trauma Network, a national organisation set up five years ago to improve the way people with life-threatening injuries are treated. While everyone involved in helping those seriously injured in road accidents has been doing their level best, Ian Civil says they've found ways that can significantly improve people's chance of survival and avoid lifelong disability. The biggest single change that can improve our care is getting patients to the right hospital at the right time. When we looked at it in the, in the annual report last year, nearly a quarter of all patients with major trauma are transferred from one hospital to another after their injury to get the definitive care they need. And it would be expected that that would have an effect on, on their outcome. And good systems, such as in some states in the US, recent changes in London um, and in Victoria and, to a lesser degree, the other Australian states, uh, aim to get patients directly to the hospital that can manage all of their care. A good percentage of all serious crashes happen on rural roads. Ian Civil says rescue helicopters could be better used. 
the tyranny of geography is is unavoidable and and we certainly will struggle to match small compact geographic areas you know like the state of maryland or or, or even victoria but with the sensible use of both road and helicopter medical services we could do a lot better than we historically have done what do you mean sensible use well, we have a lot of helicopters in New Zealand, and I think the first review I ever read about uh, how we could rationalise and improve our delivery of helicopter medical services was written um, by a clinician in 1992, and I still have that report. Um, and at that point in time, we had something like 52 helicopters that at various times performed aeromedical activities. If you look at the state of Victoria, for example, they've got a wonderful centrally controlled well-staffed retrieval service that deals with both hospital retrieval and scene work for patients who have had injury. And I think they've got eight or nine helicopters. There is work going on right at this moment um, in terms of rationalising aeromedical care in New Zealand and uh, some suggestion that the ACC is going to put the entire service out to tender. He says that means, in theory, there could be one unified helicopter service in the future. Ian Civil says the changes introduced in Victoria have meant that not only has the number of deaths dropped by a third compared to what it was in the 90s, but there's been an improvement in the quality of life for survivors. That's an achievement not only for the people concerned, but also means cost savings. So could New Zealand make similar improvements to those achieved in parts of Australia? Could we get the same degree of improvement percentage-wise? I see no reason why we should not. We always thought, and I've been practising trauma in New Zealand for nearly 30 years now, and we thought we were, we were pretty good at it, and clearly we weren't. We thought Victoria was excellent even in the 90s, and yet what they've done subsequently means that reflecting on their performance in the 90s, it was average. So I'm quite sure that we have a great potential to improve the outcome in terms of quality of outcome, the the survival, and probably the cost-effectiveness of care as well. Could you put any sort of percentage? How much better do you think it could be done in New Zealand? Well, just to put a number on it, the uh, one number, as I said, we don't know the quality of life numbers, but the mortality from our major trauma cohorts, around about 10% at the moment. Victoria's is 6%. So maybe we could get a 20% or 30% reduction. While the new government is just settling in, it already has a long to-do list. But how much was already underway under the previous national-led government? National's transport spokesperson Judith Collins declined to speak to Insight because she's only recently taken over the portfolio. However, on his way into the House of Representatives, National's previous transport minister, Simon Bridges, defended his record and said it was a question of trying to set the right priorities. There's no question we thought that the roads of national significance, um, the, the several hundred million dollars we were spending on safety improvements were a big factor where we, um, if you like, had the key role. Um, but I come back to it, there's these other areas where it's not just government, you know, it involves... Um, People behind steering wheels making decisions uh, involves decisions about what sort of car you purchase, and that makes it more complex than just saying, you know, this is a government responsibility. Yes, it is, but it's also a wider societal New Zealander responsibility. 
but he admits his government didn't manage to turn the trend around. I think a huge amount was done over several years, you know, whether it was um, the banning of cell phones, uh, whether it was um, increasing the rules around um, young young kiddies uh, in um, uh, car seats, whether it was some safety standard, whether it was actually in the end billions of dollars spent on safety improvements. Um, but, you know, there's no question at the end of um, nine years of government, we didn't crack it. Um, and I think that's, you know, likely to be the case at the end of this government as well. we just got to all keep at it. Actually, I think a good thing would be if it could be bipartisan or multipartisan, if you like, in terms of the approach. From the new government's perspective, a lot of change is needed when it comes to transport and safety. Julianne Genta is the Associate Transport Minister and has responsibility for road safety. She says the previous government's lack of success is now becoming apparent. It's come to my attention that there hasn't been much, if any, monitoring of how well the strategy is working and no action plan to ensure that um, we actually are reducing the number of fatal or serious injury crashes. My perspective as a new associate minister is that while safety has been stated as one of the top objectives of the previous government's transport policy, it has in reality been competing with other priorities, in particular uh, the Roads of National Significance program, which saw a huge amount of money going into a small number of very expensive highways. Now those highways might be quite safe, but 96% of vehicle trips aren't on those highways. So there is an opportunity cost of putting that much money on just a few projects. And that opportunity cost has been that there are a huge number of very high-value, inexpensive safety projects that have not been progressed in other parts of the network. Julianne Genta says road safety will be her number one priority. And she argues the new, wider transport focus will help bring the road toll down. We don't need more money going into roading to have more money going into high-value road safety projects. And certainly we will be looking at a much greater emphasis, which will include greater funding for road safety within the transport budget. The history of traffic engineering has prioritised traffic speeds and volume and then considered safety and cost last. I mean, the reality is it doesn't reflect the values and priorities of most people. The transport agency's Harry Wilson says it's working on a model to get the best mix of the options available, such as enforcement, road improvement and education, to reduce the deaths on the road. But transport engineer Doug Wilson says the new government's focus on improving public transport, making cycling and walking easier and moving more freight by rail and sea means there could actually be less money to improve roads. With every life lost costing the country more than $4 million, he says if the public is serious about wanting more invested in saving lives on the road, it could be time to change the accounting behind the decision-making. If we wanted to prioritise safety as higher than other factors, then an easy way to do that is in our economic evaluation methods to, is to increase that value of life. Um, but then obviously then we're taking out part of the money that has been collected in our taxes away from perhaps other things that we would also like to see. So it's a balancing effect that government has. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but we should always be considering are we spending enough money in our transport infrastructure 
and in the, in the area of safety especially? Or do we get to a point where we're actually spending too much? When do we get to a point where we hurt other parts of the economy and can we afford to do that? And that's difficult questions that we as a country need to be able to consider. And Can we afford to actually spend all of that money across all of our road network? Those questions about investing in safety may get sharper as the end of the year approaches. With still six weeks left until the end of the year, it's quite possible this year's road toll could be the worst in seven years. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz forward slash insight or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. This programme was produced by Teresa Cowie and Colin McRae with technical production by Phil Bench. Thank <laughs> you.